0: edges I to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, episode number 57. My name is Dominic. I am one of the co-hosts. The other host is Janus, and you will hear from him shortly. Today, we had the absolute pleasure to speak to Mr. Samuel David. Samuel is a Mesopotamian polytheist, an artist, writer, researcher, and educator. Uh, based out of the American Midwest. He presents at local pagan festivals, national and international conventions, um, and this includes lectures, rituals, and workshops. His adaptation of The Descent of Inanna has been featured as classroom material for California State University Los Angeles' 2020 Ancient History Syllabus. He is the founder of the religious nonprofit organization known as Four Reads. And actively networks and collaborates with others to represent and protect the interests of those who seek to revive the worship of the ancient Near Eastern gods. He is the author of Rod and Ring, as well as the newly published Lioness, Song of Inanna, and soon to be published, The Red Shepherd, Towards a New Image of Demuzid, and that will be through Anathema. Samuel's a really great. Uh, Down to earth guy Good conversationalist Fun to talk to And very knowledgeable So we hope you, you enjoy this We definitely did And we'll be jumping into the interview here in a second But first I want to say thank you to all of our Patreon supporters The support literally keeps the show running As there are costs to running a podcast So we really do appreciate any support and all of the support that we get from listeners. If you would like to partner with us and help push this project forward, head over to Patreon and look us up. We dedicate this to Hermes and Asclepius. May any merits that we accumulate doing this work be distributed to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening.
1: Ishtar, lofty one of the Agigi gods, who makes battle, who brings about combat, most stately and perfect of goddesses. At your command, O oh Ishtar, humankind is governed. The sick man who sees your face revives, his bondage is released, he gets up instantly. At your command, O oh Ishtar, the blind man sees the light. The unhealthy one who sees your face becomes healthy. I, who am very sick, I kneel, I stand before you. I turn to you to judge my case, O torch of the gods. I have seen your face. May my bonds be released. Do not delay. I am confused and anxious. I live like one. I did what you said to do a sorcerer or a sorceress whom, you know, but I do not know with magic rites of malice and assassination, which have worked in your presence have laid figurines of me in a grave, have come to assassinate me. They have worked in secret against me. I work against them openly. By your sublime command, which cannot be altered, and your firm assent, which cannot be changed, may whatever I say come true. Let life come forth to me from your pure utterance. May you be the one to say, what a pity about him, O you who are the supreme goddess among the gods.
0: That's a serious invocation. Well, everyone, welcome to the show. We are very excited to have Samuel David on, and we are going to be talking all about ancient aliens today on the show. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously though. Um, we and are DMT
2: very, and DMT. Ancient aliens, DMT MT,
0: and Lilith. Excellent, the trifecta. Thank right. you for having me. Yeah, no, we are very excited cuz you have just so much knowledge about this topic that we're going to be covering and i think it's going to really be uh, a great thing for our listeners to hear so welcome once again also we have janus here as always
2: hello everyone and what we
0: are going to be talking about is is kind of your wheelhouse is uh, the mesopotamian gods goddesses myths and not not only that but the the lived lifestyle immersing yourself in in this world, um, which I believe is is what you are doing. So maybe we can start off a little bit about you and then jump into the topic.
1: Uh, Cliff Notes version. I am from the American Midwest. I live in central Illinois and uh, the long version, the hero's journey version, if you will. I'm from Pakistan. My mom is Pakistani. My My father is an American citizen and they met in the late seventies and I came along not long after that, after they married and, uh, grew up in Pakistan and we eventually came to the States and, uh, it's been a wild ride ever since.
0: How old were you when you came over?
1: You know that's that's subject to debate because there was a lot of travel back and forth prior to us like settling in the states. So officially, I think officially, uh, we came over in I want to say maybe 1987.
0: I could be wrong. Okay, and how old were you then?
1: Um, I was about four. 4 or 5 then and i've since been back but okay
0: awesome know, live
1: here in the states and have given up any claims to dual citizenship because you know life's not easy overseas in yeah. central asia or in the middle east for people who are not of the religious minority or religious majority i should say
0: right right and if i remember right i've heard somewhere that you uh your family is christian is that correct?
1: That is correct. Uh, my my mother and her family they are a mixed bag. Uh, her father converted from Islam to Christianity. Shortly after that happened, his father mm. and his brothers attempted a, a honor killing, so wow. he had to flee for his life. My grandmother was a Sikh before she became. Mm a Christian. So there's there's uh, all sorts of interesting confluences back there. I've got family members who are Hindu, family members who are Zoroastrians or Parsis. The the challenge though is when you have family members that grew up in in a nation that was largely shaped by civil unrest, there's mm-hmm. no there's no distinct lineage that you can can trace so a lot of it's you know based on what my mom can recollect or based on what anecdotal information we've pulled together right. as an aside thanks to the power of ancestry.com and 23andme which are not they're, they're not they're not sponsoring me of course when i say <laughs> this um <laughs> they uh they do serve an interesting purpose because i've been contacted by someone that i may be related to on her side and we're trying to piece together a, a timeline and a family tree. So
2: awesome. for For all my bewailing of the modern age, these are the things that I do like about it. These things, which enable us to reconnect with our ancestry or keep in contact with people at a distance. Those are the, those are the nice things about the age we live in.
1: Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree. Absolutely. Incredible.
2: So I don't think
0: I would consider Pakistan, and correct me if I'm wrong, it it borders Iran, but uh, not exactly part of Mesopotamia. Um, So where did this interest come from?
1: So plot twist, that entire region at one time had trade relations with the Mm -hmm. Mesopotamian region. So you have the import of lapis, you have the import of livestock you have the import and export of of minerals like like tin for instance uh, there's also trade relations between the mesopotamian region and the indus valley civilizations so you've got all of these these wild things coming together the introduction though all started when i was a child growing up in the christian church My family is Pentecostal, so as a child growing up in the Christian church, specifically the Pentecostal church, there's an emphasis on the Old Testament, there's an emphasis on biblical heroes, there's a tremendous emphasis on the idolatry of the quote-unquote enemies of the Hebrew people and how that idolatry is shifting and shaping the present and and we're all going to be doomed to an eternity in hell if we don't stay on track and and while all this is going on and i'm being conditioned to believe these things i am also reading the bible on my own as a very small child and asking painful questions like why are these people so bad that they have to be killed? Or why are the gods that they worship so awful? When, for instance, in the book of Jeremiah, there's a passage, and I've mentioned this before in other interviews, there's a passage in which the prophet Jeremiah is recalling all of the deeds that the Hebrew people engaged in. And keep in mind, that entire region was never solidly monotheistic. There was, there was polytheism woven throughout the Hebrew people were, were influenced by the Canaanites and their cultures were at many, in many ways synonymous with each other. There, there was a lot of intermingling, but Jeremiah in the text points out their deeds or their misdeeds. And, the women respond and tell him that ever since they've stopped worshiping the queen of heaven and leaving her offerings, they've known nothing but war and famine and the sword. And reading that as a child, when you're told that the Lord God Almighty, who you're supposed to love and honor with all your heart in addition to his son and his Holy Spirit, when you're told that they are the utmost, the pinnacle of, of all of creation, and there's no other gods beside them. When you're told those things, and then you read for yourself what is actually in the Bible, and you start piecing together these things, especially at a young age, which is heavily discouraged, you do find yourself at odds with the, the religion or the faith that you're brought up in. So when I asked those questions, you know, why, why is this goddess such, such a horrible, a horrible force that the Hebrews, the early, the early Jewish people couldn't worship her. And the response to that from my Sunday school teacher was that I needed to read the Bible more Big mistake there, and also <laughs> to pray because as I continued to read the Bible more, of course I read in other Old Testament scriptures about gods like Tamuts, who was openly mourned by the women in Jerusalem in the Temple of Jerusalem Square. So again, <laughs> you've you've got all of these these influences there that that uh, spiritual authorities in my life were trying to dissuade me from asking questions about. And I found myself dancing the tango between polytheism and Christianity for a number of years. I even went into Christian ministry at one point in an attempt to, I guess you could say reconcile those differences because while in Christian ministry, I'm also Studying apologetics. And if you are not familiar with apologetics, it's basically a philosophy that Christian ministry relies on to answer questions that would be posed by non Christians in order to explain discrepancies in scripture in comparison to how scripture relates to this ever changing world that we live in. And sometimes, it just causes more problems than those that would necessarily exist. So I found myself eventually coming to terms with the fact that I could never reconcile those two and left the church, left the fold, uh, still friends with Jesus because you know, you've got to have fire insurance. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I've left, I've left the church deconstructing completely, but at the same time, fully invested in the spiritual current that that I have waded into and am fully fully immersed in now.
2: Well you have the book of you know the story of Esther and Mordecai is Ishtar and Marduk. Yeah. I mean it's all there. The the Old Testament is a pastiche of assimilated myth from several cultures, the probably mm-hmm. the most prominent being the Babylonian and Egyptian Influences. So it's so funny that you read, you, you see the old, I remember my, I remember having similar realization where looking at the old Testament going, Hmm, when I read other cultures, estimations of Egypt, I don't know. I see words like heaven on earth, home of the gods, uh, nation of greatest dignity and refinement on earth. Then I read the old Testament and the egyptians are the hated, the evil, the oppressors and it's like hmm, who's right here yeah
0: <laughs> but let's <laughs> be really real about? too i mean the babylonians uh the assyrians the egyptians the israelites i mean none of them were really uh angels they were all pretty ruthless uh as far as murder pillaging etc you know
1: oh god i don't get me started on the assyrians because right we think that that our, in the West, we think that American, quote-unquote, war propaganda um, and psyops are terrifying concepts. The Assyrians would literally flay people alive and hang their skins on city walls and on palaces and on temple walls as war trophies. They would publicly behead their war captives they would hang their heads from trees as ornaments they would disinter their dead grind their 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 remains into dust and scatter them to the wind like these were some hardcore terrorists
0: yeah 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 I, I think there's a story I'm not sure if it was the Babylonians or the Assyrians I want to say the Assyrians it's a story that stuck out to me there was like a I'm going to say it's the Assyrians. There was a Babylonian queen or or someone of, of, of high regard that was captured and they had cut decapitated her husband who was the king and they made her, you know, stare at it as she was to make love with the, the Assyrian king, you know, yeah. just like insane, insane stuff. I
2: wouldn't call that making love. But.
0: <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure what word to use, but um we won't, we
1: won't we won't we won't go into any more detail about that. But you know, it's funny because well not funny. Not funny, haha. Funny terrifying. This idea that the the ancient world was in this in this halcyon age where there's there's no patriarchal threat. Everything's a matriarchal power and, and we have everyone living at peace as, as pagans. And when we realize when faced with literal historical evidence that, that just wasn't true. Like the Celts were, were headhunters, the, The Greeks were pretty seriously xenophobic. Even the Mesopotamian people were largely xenophobic. In fact, a lot of the demons that inhabit regions outside of the Mesopotamian region, whether that would be Sumer, whether that would be in Babylon, anyone outside of that range, outside of the the Tigris-Euphrates river valley, Their cultures were demonized, and it's interesting in in the sense that when you look at it from an anthropological point of view or a sociological point of view, it really does speak to the, the xenophobia that they have. And it also does shed some light on some passages, specifically when it comes to demons in their literature that come from outside of the land or mm. beyond the mountains, if you will.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, so as far as your Mesopotamian Mesop- Mesopotamian <laughs> polytheism, um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of peoples we're talking about here. We're talking about the Hittites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Sumerians, you know, the list goes on and on and, and their gods, you know, there, there is some, Conflation going on between gods, but there are also some pretty strong borders. So, as far as with with your practice, just being kind of a uh, a polytheist, that I don't know. You tell me. Like, how do you see what people do? You kind of align yourself with, if if any, or is it just kind of a very general practice? How does that look?
1: It's pretty general practice. When I started, when I realized that there was a community, I identified as a sumerian reconstructionist Mm. but after studying the culture and the timeline and and the contemporaneous timeline with all of these cultures they all existed at the same time they all shared the same gods similar gods rather the akkadians the the semitic speaking people they had their own pantheons and then the indigenous Sumerian people they spoke an isolate language so they had their own gods however they were largely compatible mm-hmm. and you know we can thank uh, and Hedawana, who's the daughter of Sargon II she was installed as essentially the equivalent of a female pope so she was tasked in her role as the high priestess of reconciling these differences, and bridging the gap between the Akkadian quote unquote invaders and the indigenous Sumerian people. So there's a lot of conflation. We can thank her. I would say we could thank her mm. for the syncretism in an official capacity and this the the syncretism between the Semitic gods and the original Sumerian gods. But as far as my own practice, it's Pretty. I don't want to call it a pastiche. I don't want to call it derivative. It's. It, I. I would say it's an inspired current, contemporary current. So, since I don't reside in the Near East and those cities have long since left this plane of existence, there are numerous iterations of cults. There are numerous iterations of ruling pantheons and when I set out to quote unquote perfect this spiritual path for myself, I came to realize that trying to attain perfection is going to be a serious detriment to myself. So I found myself incorporating the gods that I was drawn to into my own personal pantheon because it was easier to reconcile those differences between pantheons, it was also easier to approach these gods from a contemporized religious or spiritual praxis that's derived from historical sources, mm-hmm. especially since these gods were by and large worshipped well into the the common era in certain certain parts of the world. So it's not like they're completely and totally foreign there's material that that we can draw from
2: well and i think you make a good point here see we are in this time we're not in the time of 3000 years ago 2000 years ago we can't we can't attempt to import wholesale the modalities and the paradigm of the people of those times we we can interact with these this non-human species of beings who are related to us um in a way that is doable and achievable and reachable by us in the now you know we're in this time it's not feasible for us to attempt to slavishly reproduce every element of say babylonian temple practice or egyptian temple practice because we don't not only do we not have functional houses of the gods equivalent to what they had then, but which which of us have the time to do that? How do we? Who has the time, the full time, you know, ability to invest in living a life where you're uh, reproducing the actions of a temple priest? It's not feasible today, but the gods still exist. And to your
1: point, there is a distinct difference, I believe, and would respectfully disagree with anyone who would say otherwise. There is a distinct difference between reconstruction and reenactment. And I think that, that there are a number of people who go into the reconstruction mindset under the assumption that they should actually be reenacting and developing a praxis based on reenactment.
0: And it comes across looking like something from like the Renaissance festival.
1: It can, but it also comes across as something that is misguided to, you know, to some extent or other. It also comes across as something that's completely at odds with a contemporary world because, our understanding of the world has changed our comprehension of the world has changed our comprehension of 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 meteorological phenomena science the human body the, mm-hmm. the brain like all of our inner workings that comprehension has changed fundamentally so this notion that we can just overlay ancient wisdom Over a modern framework. Yeah, it can work to some extent, but there is a lot of room for improvement. And again, I would respectfully disagree with with anyone that would say otherwise. If they want to cancel me, we can take it out to the parking lot. (laughs)
0: yes we are we are our goal today is to get you canceled so um loving it
1: let's let's court controversy and and get let's all of us get canceled
2: together great (laughs) well speaking of
0: yeah speaking of getting canceled what else do you have janus what else do i
2: (laughs) what i have is a big um so and and okay let's let's talk about this a little bit more let's unpack this a little bit more right so for instance in the in the scribal cult of the great god the it was common for scribes to um, be expected to compose their own prayers so given that right given that as an act of devotion um, the composition of prayer with appropriate epithets and um, other elements would demonstrate the skill of the scribe and the knowledge of the scribe of the cult. So, do we need to repeat those exact same prayers that those scribes composed as acts of skill and devotion and the demonstration of their aptitude, or do we have? Should we instead be looking at those prayers and uh, applying a hermeneutic to them, which enables us to unpack? What makes them efficacious? What makes them effective? Right. So instead of a slavish repro- reproduction and mimicry, we should be going. Okay, what makes this work? What if I have a car, and if if I have a car, and I've I'm trying to make another car, and I've acquired this car, and this this car is a relic. People don't have cars anymore. I'm gonna take apart the car and look at how the pieces come together and make the car run. And I think that well, that's what we should be doing in these situations. We should be taking a good hard look at the ritualistic components, the, uh, the prayers, the gestures, the garments, the s- cultic symbols, the days, months, and years, that are sacred the asterisms and planets um in neoplatonic terms the synthemata the symbols and the signs and the and, and understanding the the inner workings of this so then we can take that and we can build a car for today that will drive today instead of trying to build the chariot of 2000 years ago we can look at what made the chariot run and and build a car that's functional and practical for today's world.
0: I don't disagree. No, that's that was an interesting analogy. And yeah, um and I think that's what we have to do. I don't think we really have a choice either. Like you said earlier, it's not feasible to recreate a, an Egyptian temple priesthood um right now. I mean mainly because we don't fully understand the context of what was happening back then, I think, as well as you know, all sorts of other factors. So um, let's get into the practice and and let's start with the gods, Samuel. For those listeners who aren't necessarily familiar with, with that region of the world and, the, and those gods and goddesses, can you maybe give us an overview of, of some of the mythology, just kind of the broad strokes, some of the general themes and some of the important uh, gods and stories to kind of kick it off? Sure.
1: So, within that entire region, you have overlapping pantheons, which consist well over 1,500 gods. And and these gods had numerous functions, a lot of overlapping functions. But at the end of the day, there's still more or less a core pantheon that is written about in myth, written about in in elegate compositions and liturgy, at least based on, on what has been recovered, what's been translated, what's been cataloged. So you have Inanna that is pretty much the most prolific in the sense that she had over 180 temples or 180 temple presences, one could say. There's a shrine at the very least, in numerous cities multiple shrines multiple temples to her so you have numerous myths that involve her her more widely known myth her, her more prevalent myth is the descent wherein she has already expanded her kingdom in heaven she's expanded her kingdom and domain upon the earth and in the myth it references her quote-unquote inclining her ear to the underworld which means essentially to sort out with her own wisdom and her own understanding that there's something there that she needs to to obtain and achieve for herself so why not go after the underworld as a goddess who's already taken control of heaven who has the quote-unquote divine measures or the may that govern universal order that govern everything from the major workings of the universe to minutia of day-to-day life so she sets her mind on taking over the underworld which was an ultimate taboo because it went in the it flew in the face of the divine order as a whole because anyone who goes to the underworld there's a certain protocol and Inanna broke that protocol, or in the Akkadian iteration, Ishtar broke that protocol. Because when you go to the underworld, especially in in the way she presents herself within the narrative of that myth, she goes under the pretense of mourning over the death of Arishkagal's husband, who in the in the myth, their relationship as siblings is a a fictive narrative so to refer to someone as a sibling depending on the context mind you to refer to someone as a sibling that is essentially calling them your peer and we have parallels of this in in other cultures you know, we have parallels of this in biblical scripture if i were to call someone my father that would mean that they're my superior if i were to call someone my son or daughter that would mean that they're my subordinate Anyway, back to the matter at hand. So within the context of this myth, she's visiting her quote unquote sister to mourn the death of her husband, who in another myth was the bull of heaven that was mercilessly slaughtered by Gilgamesh and Enkidu after Inanna orchestrated that whole bit. So <laughs> there's there's she's she's got a lot of a lot of uh, roles and various myths that all intersect. But she goes to the underworld's gates and demands to be let in to "quote unquote" mourn the death of Orishka husband. However, she happens to be wearing her finery. She's not going as someone in mourning. She's going as a dignitary on a military campaign. If you were to, if we were to take it in its original context and we understood the width and breadth of that culture and those elements that inform that myth, that's what it would be. It would be apparent that that is what she is doing, especially since when she requests to be let in, she says that if she's not let into the underworld, she's going to break the gates and the dead are going to rise up and outnumber the living. That's not exactly a request. That's that's a a demand so you have her myth where she goes into the underworld she is unfortunately executed for for her hubris and is eventually resurrected by by enki using two beings that he created in addition to that myth though you've got an even an even greater myth at least in in my own opinion where while she is surveying the width and breadth of her domain, and and in the myth it goes on to list her conquests, Inanna is tired after these various side quests and decides to take a nap, as many gods in the ancient east do. It's like a motif, and it's a motif that I love because I happen to be an avid fan of taking naps. So she lays down for a nap at the roots or at the the bottom of a tree and is essentially nestled in the roots while she's sleeping. uh, The gardener happens upon her and she's in such a deep sleep that she can't be, she can't be awakened. So he removes her regalia, has sex with her against her will. I mean, he rapes her while she's sleeping and then he puts her clothing back on her. And when she wakes up, she realizes what's happened because her regalia is in disarray and she demands that justice be done and threatens to destroy the world. If she doesn't get that. So while she's searching the globe, if you will, for the offender, she's pretty much attacking the landscape and you know causing storms and and threatening to flood flood the earth with with blood and she finally finds her rapist and she slaughters him as well as everyone who has attempted to come to his aid and hide him but she tells him that as an act of compassion his name will be remembered in song and in myth so hashtag kill your rapist. That's my, that's my trending uh, hashtag on Twitter. I'm just kidding. I'm not on that. I'm not, on, I'm not on, on Twitter actively. Cause if I was, I would probably become a ghost.
0: <laughs> so going back a little bit, Samuel, I, I, I found that um, the mention you had, you had mentioned that, that statement that she had made about kind of opening the gates uh, of the underworld. Um, and it just reminded me of a, a spell in the PGM and there, there is a lot of connection between Ereshkigal and, and Hecate and Artemis and Selene, but there's, there's one spell in particular and it it's, uh, to paraphrase it, I think it, it's something like Kore, you who part the gates of steel unbreakable. And I immediately make that connection with, with that scene in, in Inanna's descent. And I mean, there are some obvious connections with Persephone and uh, Demuzid and, you know, Osiris, and Adonis, and Christ. I mean, the whole underworld story is, is very universal and very interesting.
1: Most definitely.
0: Okay. And so I mentioned Demuzid. So how does he fit into this story?
1: <laughs> so he fits in as a footnote, And as Inanna rises from the underworld, she is tasked with finding someone to take her place because there's that law of exchange. That is one of the edicts of the underworld where in order for someone to ascend, someone has to descend in their place. And we also find this also affecting gods, of course, in in this myth, there is another myth that involves Ereshkigal and the god Nergal, who was originally right. a god, a heavenly deity and an earthly deity. But within the context of that myth, Ereshkigal specifically states that in order for her to ascend to heaven, someone has to be seated upon her throne. So, again, we've got that exchange. There's There's got to be you know, a shifting of the weight in order for, for things to happen. Anyway, back to, to Demuzid, we have Inanna searching the land for someone who will take her place. And she eventually encounters Demuzid as do the demons that are traveling with her that are tasked with bringing her substitute back. And in that myth, uh, Demuzid is not mourning The death of inanna so as a result he he is stricken with the quote-unquote cry of guilt and inanna curses him to take her place in the underworld what's interesting though is that's a later composition so demuzid has three different iterations of his death that precede the descent of inanna and in those iterations of his death he has a premonition that he's actually going to die. And his sister interprets this premonitory dream. So we have an instance where he is taken to the underworld by demons. We have an instance where he is captured by bandits to be conscripted into essentially, you know, a soldier for hire. And then in or rather not bandits, I take that back, uh, mercenaries from quote-unquote foreign lands who are conscript, conscripting him. And then we have bandits who you know, set out to kill him and, and take everything that he owns. So in these, these myths that predate the Descent of Inanna myth, we've got situations where this poor hapless youth is <laughs> taken before his time, dragged into the underworld or dragged to foreign lands or taken up into the mountains because, interestingly enough, the same word and symbol for mountain also corresponds to foreign lands. It's also used to describe the underworld. So there's a a lot of of different contexts that that would need to be taken into consideration when reading these myths. So outside of the context of Inanna's own myth, he's got Dumuzid, has some pretty interesting myths. He's got some pretty interesting tales to tell uh, in one obscure myth because he and Inanna apparently have a tempestuous relationship. (laughs) He is discovered by Inanna while he is uh, having an extramarital affair and as punishment Inanna kills the woman or orders the death of, of the woman that he's having sex with while Demuza looks on in horror. So again, another instance where their relationship while very passionate, very erotic was not exactly the most stable. Uh, Coincidentally enough, there are two, two deities in my personal pantheon that, (laughs) that, that I venerate in my own personal praxis. Um, we've got other gods as well who are similar to Demuzid. We have the God Ningish Zeta, or the Lord of the Good Tree, or the Lord of the Good Vine. You'll think of these names as we, you know go go down this path of Mesopotamian mythology and comparative religion. Um he also has, a descent myth he's also a god of vegetation and god of the underworld and uh i mean i i could just keep going we've got so much ground to cover so many gods that we could talk about so May many I myths interject? that
2: uh I'd, yeah
1: go ahead oh interject good. away
2: i would like to uh i'd like to stick on inanna for now though i really want to kind of um center around her Um, For the time being, uh, absolutely. I know that your devotion has definitely been focused on her as well. So let's talk a little bit. You've just, you know, you've elaborated somewhat on one of her myths, but let's talk a little bit about her nature. Uh, She has an interestingly paradoxical set of two, you know, paradoxical sets of characteristics. On one hand, she is associated with love in you know celestial and earthly form but on the other hand she's also a goddess who has a very martial side i was wondering if you could just elaborate on inanna and the apparent sort of contradictions in her character
1: yeah definitely so we have inanna in her earliest incarnation if we were to look at the entomology of her name not only does inanna mean essentially mean lady of heaven it also means proprietress of the date palm. So you have date palms, which were a staple of, of of a food staple within in that region. The date harvest was a major deal because dates grow under any conditions, essentially. Um, so she started out as a goddess or a proprietress of the date house where dates were stored, materials were gathered things were 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 kept for the people and we find an interesting anecdote in the myth concerning Enkian and the world order where he's essentially setting things into into order for various gods to take over and continue to maintain throughout the rest of eternity and Inanna comes to him, and she's described as a young girl, and says that all of the gods are given these various powers and domains, but what about me? So we're first introduced to her, at least within the context of that myth, as a young woman who doesn't have much agency, and aside from the fact that she is the subject of erotic liturgy or erotic myth and erotic poetry we also find in later antiquity especially during the time of and when inanna was being conflated with ishtar we find her being attributed with a lot of martial attributes not only is she a goddess of love and sexuality she's also the goddess of passion and war and she's the quote-unquote dragon who spews venom across the land. she uh, dances in the dust. Uh, battle is her sacred dance. There's references to her heaping up the severed heads of men. Um, so there's, there's a lot of imagery that, that's very reminiscent of, of Hindu goddesses as well. So it's pretty wild how you've got this goddess who's very paradoxical. And to the casual observer, and many many neo pagans uh, tend to no offense to them tend to gravitate towards Anana or to Anana as solely being a goddess of sexuality or goddess of love. When we all know that no one person has a singular personality trait. We're all complex individuals. So why would a goddess not be a complex individual? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And um, I wanted to get your thoughts on Inanna's descent, going back to the underworld again, something that I find fascinating about that story. Well, one of one of the things that I do is the, the seven gates that she has to go through uh, to get to the underworld and at each gate, she's stripped of, of more clothing until she's naked at the end. And I think you see this reflected in, in other areas of the world where, you know, after, after death, you're stripping away all these different pieces that made you who you are potentially. You know, when you're born, you, you start to take on the attributes of all the planets as you descend into uh, your material form. And then when you die, you know, you you strip all those layers away. Do you see that um, as being the case in this story, as she descends into the underworld, or is there something else going on?
1: So historically, when when someone dies, one's family will gather if they are, you know, financially secure or in a station in life where they're able to do these things, and they're buried with grape goods. So not only are they buried with with clothing, they're also buried with additional garments. They're buried with jewelry. They're buried with with food, sometimes water, uh, jugs of water are, are buried or were buried with them, as well as animals or effigies of animals. But when Inanna descends, the whole stripping of her Her regalia is essentially a Rishkegul on the spot. If you were to to read the narrative, uh, there's an instance where it's reported to a Rishkegul that Inanna is at the gates demanding to be let in. And in that narrative, the passage is translated as, excuse me, uh, a Rishkegul strikes her thigh and if you're familiar with Old Testament uh, literature and, and contemporary literature of that time, to strike one's thigh is an expression of disbelief. Uh, it's, it's an expression of outrage as well. So she realizes what Inanna is there for, because at the beginning of the myth, her seven articles or or seven pieces of regalia are also referred to as the may so you could potentially consider those seven items as being the material personifications of the divine measures or the may that she possesses that govern the ordinances of the universe from you know the most major of things to the the most minute so essentially Inanna's taking all of that with her. But in order for her to descend into the underworld, Erishgugl knows that if she's coming here with all of her power and her majesty and everything that makes her Inanna, I'm going to have to take that from her because if I don't, she's going to have you know everything that she needs to take over my domain. Mm. So we have Inanna slowly being stripped of her belongings and being presented naked in that instance though when she enters the throne room there's a brief passage where erishkigal gets up which was customary in that region during those various periods of time where dignitaries uh, or nobles when receiving dignitaries or or other people of of similar ranking would stand up from their throne or from their their seat of power and descend the dais to essentially welcome these people in, into their presence. But as Ereshkigal stands, Inanna runs to sit on Ereshkigal's throne because the throne is essentially vacant. And again, keep in mind, when people are buried, they're given grave goods. We have an elegant composition of a historical king who died in battle and in that composition. And in fact, I even, I referenced this in my rod and ring text. Um, He greets the gods of the underworld and he is dressed in his finery and he presents them with, with grave goods and offerings and is essentially welcomed into the court of the underworld. So yeah, it's a very, it's a, a very distinct departure from what is, or what was a uh, common cultural norm. So for someone to be be brought into the presence of a or any dignitary, uh, essentially nude, it was essentially saying that they are the lowest of the low. They're so poor that they can't afford a scrap of clothing. They have no dignity whatsoever. They're stripped of everything.
0: Got it. Got it. Thank you. And do you think you could elaborate on these these powers that were stripped from her? like and and you mentioned them a little bit earlier where where she she wanted her piece of the pie, like these these may is that how you say it? Yeah, um, these individual powers. So what is this exactly?
1: So it's funny that you you ask that because we really don't have it's it's like with the German language or or in Japanese or even Chinese. there are certain terms or certain words that don't have a compatible translation. So in many texts, they're just referred to as the may. And my personal take is divine measures. I can't remember, or divine ordinances. I can't remember where I read that. If I could, I would give the originator of of that term, praise where praise is due. But it's it's largely an amorphous concept, and in myths that predate the descent, we have these same concepts that are embodied in what's known as the tablets of destiny, that were possessed by Enlil, who was the chief of the gods, after Enki compiled them and gave them to him. Um, so we have you know the seven articles that are are considered the may that Inanna wears. We have the tablet of destiny that essentially is the culmination of all of these things. And then in the myth concerning Inanna and Enki, where she beats him in a drinking game and acquires these these may and takes them back to her city where she is the patron. There's actually a, a somewhat exhaustive list of these various things. So, you know, one of them is, is the lamentation singer. Um, and in fact, two of them, what's interesting is two of those may that are listed is the descending into the underworld and ascending from the underworld. So reading everything, if, if we were to put all of these myths in some sort of chronological order and read them, much like one would read like i don't know an epic like the lord of the rings or <laughs> like any any graphic novel that's published by marvel you know you would see all of these little easter eggs coming together and then suddenly at the very end it's like oh shit it's all making so much sense now it makes perfect sense she's got all of these things that but give her the ability to do x y and z why wouldn't she go to the underworld why wouldn't she attempt to to take over
0: yeah, yeah. And the may are interesting to me. I, I did a very surface level dive into them and and like some of them are qualities, some of them seem like attributes. They almost seem like the platonic forms in a way. Yes. There's like victory, courage, but then there's also like instruments and mm-hmm. and functions and things like that. It's it's super interesting. I, I definitely want to learn more. So if you have any uh advice on on where to look into that, I'd be interested.
1: So the Sumerian tab notes uh, never really describe what the myth or or what the may look like, um, whether they're physical objects, whether they're some amorphous concept, but there is a list that has been compiled and translated from fragmented texts. So in addition to tangible objects like the throne or the scepter of a noble, the royal insignia. There's also kingship. There's lasting ladyship. There's the priestly office of a divine lady, which is essentially the highest priestess in the land, the female Pope equivalent. There's truth. There's descent into the netherworld, ascent from the netherworld. There's the battle standard, which... Not only is is the battle standard like the the regalia that's possessed by the king, but it's also like the totemic device. So, while the Mesopotamian people didn't have the quote unquote totem concept that we think of today, there was a concept mm-hmm. like a totem or a totemic device. Um, in addition to all of these things, we also have the spicier things like sexual intercourse, prostitution. We have, uh, law libel. We have enmity. We have the destruction of cities. We have lamentation. We have falsehood, holy purification, fear, terror. Uh, we also
0: have oral sex. Yeah. (laughs) And so these are like Pokemon cards that the gods select, <laughs> the, essentially. Uh,
1: the Pokemon cards of the gods,
0: yeah. Yeah. Gotta catch them all.
2: <laughs> Woo! So um what did the worship of Inanna look like?
1: Oh, do we have time? So <laughs> there's this notion that there is sacred prostitution that was widely practiced when What's interesting is if we were to look at specific narratives of the gods and myth, population control was something that, that was the norm. And in fact, in the course of one of the flood myths, the gods specifically decree that lifespan being a, be a limited factor or a limiting factor, uh, disease be a limiting factor, as well as women who become priestesses being more or less forbidden from having children. So you have this notion that that temple prostitution was something that was organized and enacted by these priestesses when evidence seems to suggest that it wasn't the priestess. It was more, more or less like a community worker under the auspices of the temple itself, um because many of the individuals who lived in the temple and were and worked at the temple were specifically dedicated to the god of that temple, the goddess of that temple. Uh, some were essentially bond servants or wage slaves of that temple and essentially property of that temple. So we've got that aspect. Uh, we also have an interesting, uh, role that a certain class of her priests embodied and it involved ritual mutilation along with ecstatic worship and that was enacted by the kargara priesthood which involved men and, and and women wearing garments of both genders so the men would wear the garments of a woman, I believe, on their right side and the garments of of a man has, you know, the stereotypical male-female dynamic uh, in, in the ancient world, which was very heteronormative, mind you. Um, so they wore male clothing on one side of the body, female clothing on the other side of the body. They had swords. They had knives. Um, if you're familiar with uh, Shia Muslims, when... They have uh, certain certain religious practices that involve ritual mutilation mm-hmm. and and bloodshed. Um, these same figures, the Kurgara priesthood, there's a lamentation myth where they're described as sword swallowers. So that's probably one of the earliest historical or one of the earliest historical examples of the art of sword swallowing. So who knows? Maybe that's one of the May. Um, in addition to that, we have Lamentation Priests who soothed the heart of Inanna by singing hymns and banging drums, playing tambourine-like instruments, like sistrums. Very
2: interesting.
1: We have Lustration Priests and Priestesses as well. So so let's... You name it, so she had
2: trans- it. Let's like translate this into... For lack of a better term, you're a practitioner, right? So what does effective, effective meaning uh, capable of producing discernible effects in your life and possible communion with and or interaction with the goddess, what, is it, what does it look like, an effective worship practice, veneration practice of the goddess in your life based on these ancient sources?
1: Well, you're asking the hard questions (laughs) and I appreciate you for that. Um, uh, my acts of devotion are liturgical compositions that end up being included in, in books like rod and ring. Um, I also produce cultic objects. I have these votive masks that I create. That I use in my own personal praxis. Each one is is devoted to a specific god, and Nana has her own uh, cultic mask. They're all made under certain certain uh, specifications, and there are certain ritual acts that have to be performed prior to the creation of these objects. So that would include like ritual purity in the form of ritual bathing uh fasting like literal fasting you know most people are like oh fasting how could you that's you know so so foreign a concept to to even consider but yeah fasting is one of those those aspects of worship that that is utilized in my own personal praxis my celebration of these these uh, spiritual mysteries. Uh, there's also uh, the playing of instruments. While I'm not exactly the best musician, it's been years since my my fingers have tickled the ivory keys. Um, I do make an attempt to to play music and sing in the privacy of my own temple.
0: So, so. Samuel, what what would you say are your your main source materials that you use for your practice? Like, what are your favorite uh, resources?
1: Gosh, my favorite resources. I have I have more books than I can count. Mm-hmm. And if I were to pick, if there was a gun to my head right now, that said, and and whoever is holding that gun is like five books go. Um, there are five books that that are uh, of the utmost importance to me. In fact, I have one within reach, and the title of that text is Before the Muses, and it's an anthology of Akkadian literature compiled by an academic by the name of Benjamin Foster. And in this book, we have an introduction to the Akkadian language. We have historical literature, uh, essays, more or less introducing the reader to this material. Um, there's also the background on reading the literature itself. Then we actually go into the contents, which includes actual hymns of praise. There's mythological narratives. There's, there's uh, poetry love songs, even. Uh, there's also proverbs, incantations. Like if there was, if there was anything remotely similar to a Bible within the the contemporary Mesopotamian community, I would refer to this book as as a Bible.
0: But awesome. clearly, we don't have one. It, it looks at least as big as the as the Old Testament. Not, um, it is uh,
1: approximately one thousand forty-four pages long.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a that's it's a, a light nice read. Buck. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's one. So the guy with the gun is still there. What are the other four? So
1: the guy with the gun is still there. The other one, looking at my bookshelf uh, in the next room. The other one is the harps that once, um, which is a. Compilation of of Sumerian myths and uh, liturgical texts, and that one was compiled by Thorkelt Jacobson. Uh, there's also a book outlining Akkadian prayers. I cannot remember specifically the the uh, title. And then there are two texts that are the canonical lamentations, also compiled compilations of of translated texts and then the fifth book the specific title escapes me but it's essentially a comparative text that analyzes mesopotamian texts in comparison to biblical texts and Hmm. pretty much lays them all out so you see the similarities between say the book of job and the parable of of the righteous sufferer which was uh an akkadian composition babylonian akkadian composition i think
0: fascinating awesome thank you and i mean we will probably be wrapping up soon so let's talk about your books you've got a few books out and and at least one in the works if not more so let's let's talk about that because I'm excited about these new books that you've got coming out specifically, but you, you started with the Rodden Ring. is that So I, that yeah, I started book?
1: with uh, Rodden Ring, which was my first book that was published by Anathema. Prior to this book, though I did compile a, a lot of material that was going to go into an anthology that was to have been produced by various members of the Mesopotamian uh, polytheist community. And that project unfortunately did not come to completion. So a lot of that material made its way into the rod and ring book after it was elaborated upon. I also wrote a short story that was included in an anthology about the human sage Adapa from Mesopotamian myth. And it was a retelling of that myth, as well as a uh, contemporary narrative of of Adapa as an immortal human who managed to obtain the gift of immortality under his own own means. So in addition to Rod and Ring, I have a very small, slim volume that's going to be released later this year it's available for pre-order now with Miskatonic and the title of that text is Lioness a song to Inanna and it's essentially an invocation text that refers to Inanna with a number of historical epithets it also includes uh, cuneiform that was rendered in calligraphy by an artist by the name of Rowan Cassidy. And I have another book that's going to be released by Anathema in 2023, is entitled Towards a New Image of Demuzid. And that's going to explore Demuzid's myths. It's also going to explore the liturgical compositions and and ritual incantations that he's mentioned in. So while I'm deriving material from historical sources, I'm also contemporizing it and using the, the material that I include in my own day-to-day praxis. So that ritual text isn't something that has just been, been concocted for the purpose of, of filling a book and (laughs) getting it published. This is, this is stuff that I do.
0: Yeah. No, it sounds wonderful. And the the pictures I saw of the the lioness song of Inanna, looks beautiful. It's a beautiful little book. Um yeah, so very interesting. Congratulations.
2: Thank you. Yeah, so I wanna um I just wanna jump into another question with you here. What are your thoughts on the influence of the cult of Demuzi, Tammuz, Adonis on early Christianity?
1: Haha, that is a good question because that was actually that was my my initial angle when I was writing this this manuscript for my demuzid book. and a lot of that research went well beyond the scope, the intended scope of this book. So we have Demuzid, who historically, depending on the city in which which he was worshiped or the city state in which he was worshiped, he was either, a pastoral deity or he was an agricultural deity whose life and death was linked to the the vegetation uh, life cycle. So he's a God who's ascribed a number of epithets, which are not exclusive to him. There are a number of gods within the ancient Near East, within Central Asia, the The Levant region, even the Mediterranean region, which have a lot of traits, they share a lot of the same epithets, shepherd being one of them. So to the early Christians, or even to the Jewish people who later became Christians or were identified as Christians, hearing about a figure who was quote unquote, the good son or the righteous son or the good shepherd, or even in the case of, of the God, Mm -hmm. Ningish Sita, the Lord of the true vine. You know, we have biblical epithets that are all Mm -hmm. consistent with these, these near Eastern epithets. So the notion of a quote unquote dying and rising God is not something that was novel at the time. Anybody on any street corner, in any, any city square or or obscure rural village would know exactly who you're talking about. If you were to call God X, you know, the good shepherd or the Lord of the vine or, you know, you name it, they would right. have known it. Well,
2: right. And that's the thing is like there was, I, I, I actually take issue with the term syncretism because it implies a sort of cobbling together of external forms, rather, rather than a recognition of the inner identity beyond disparate external forms. Um, and I think that the attitude in antiquity was closer to what I just described—a um, a recognition that we're dealing with the same essence, the same, the same eidos, and and it is being expressed in different cultural contexts. I mean, if you look at this god, Adonis, or um, Tammuz, or Dumuzi, or you you see uh, you see these cultures making clear connections between him and Dionysos um, and Osiris. And it's not this thing where it's an external forced together thing. It's this clear idea that maybe there is this sort of deity that is pan-cultural in his influence and celebrated in these different cultures. I mean, I just, I think it's really interesting because when you go deeply into some of these quote-unquote syncretisms, you find a very, very consistently um, the the symbols are the same, the cult activities are very similar, the the essential myth themes are present. They change a little bit. Here, from culture to culture, some things are present, some things are not. But when, if you were to take all of those together as a whole, sure, you might not have the wine in one culture, but you might have the beer in another, or you might have something else. And you also see that with Ishtar Inanna. I mean, the 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 Phoenicians with Astarte seem to really be just promulgating the cult of Ishtar Inanna and. in a form that was more adapted to their uh, culture. And then if you look at the the early manifestation of Aphrodite in among the Hellenes, there is a ton of um, Near Eastern Semitic influence there.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think that what we, at least within the, the, the contemporary trappings that we find ourselves in here in the West, we forget that these cultures did not exist in a vacuum.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They knew of each other. There, there's cultural exchange, there's trade routes. I mean, as I'd mentioned earlier in in our chat, people in the Indus Valley were trading and exchanging goods with people in in the Mesopotamian region. So it's not like they didn't know who people were referring to when they saw certain symbols or you know, comparable terms or, or analogous epithets. and That's one thing that I really wanted to be mindful of and, and sensitive to. Uh, one of the ritual texts, which I referred to in the book as a syncretic rite, which I also take umbrage with that word because of its connotation today, um, not only do I include Demuzid and, and his Semitic counterpart uh, Temuz, I also include uh, Adonis and Addis. I also include uh, Melkart, who was the the god of Tyre, who was uh, Estarte's uh, consort. There's also the Hittite god, uh, Telepinu, who's myth is almost identical to that of of demuzids in the sense that well, I should take the back, not almost identical, similar to some degree in that nobody can find him. Uh, people you know people on the earth assume that he's dead and he's found by an insect. He's found by a bee, just as demuzid's corpse, in his myths uh, was found by a fly and this god telepino is also a vegetation deity who resides in the underworld so again cultural cultural exchange it's it's no different today if we were to look at say the the marian cults the quote-unquote marian cults where they're all aspects of the Virgin Mary; they just have different epithets, or they're mm-hmm. referred to by by different names. I mean, we see st- we see this historically even within the Mesopotamian region with Inanna and with with Ishtar. We have Ishtar of Nineveh. We have Ishtar of Arbella. Um, none of these goddesses were were the same, but they were the same. They were just mm-hmm. facets of of the same goddess it's like looking at at a gemstone it's comprised of dozens of facets and within that same gemstone there are more facets because of these reflected surfaces and the way the light hits it and and it's diffused and you know creates all of these these dazzling uh reflections and refractions i'm probably gonna court controversy within my own community when i say that Sometimes sometimes I'm, I'm willing to think that maybe it's one God who's just wearing different masks or one, one God who's responding to, to different names. I know in, in my own case, putting it on a, a human level, I have a coworker whose name is Dan, and I've worked with other people. Uh, I've worked with Ben, I've worked with Pam, I've worked with Stan. So you call one person, we're all going to answer because we think it's our name. What if these gods and these spirits operate in a similar manner? Oh, you're using a name that I'm familiar with hearing. I'm going to answer you or I'm going to manifest or send an emanation. I don't know. I, I think sometimes we think we overthink these things when the ancient people or just it was like, Matter of fact, they didn't really give it much thought. They just went about their their business, knowing that that's just how it was.
0: Right, right, and yeah, in, in some neo neoplatonic thought, it said that that each god is is in all gods, or all gods are in each god. So that would be another way to look at it, and it's reflected in your what you said about the the faceted gemstone. Um, I could definitely see that. So well nice put.
2: It's it's very panentheistic or, or henotheistic, depending on... I know there are subtle differences between those two perspectives, but... So, would it be appropriate to assume that, you, that your primary deity that you are devoted to is Inanna?
1: So, I would say that she is the primary, yes. Um, there are a total of seven gods in my personal pantheon that have their own shrines in, in my temple. So Inanna is pretty much at the top. Uh, there's also Marduk, there's Demuzid, there's Inanna's brother Shamash or Utu, the solar God of justice. Um, there's also the God Ishkur, who was known as a to the Semitic people. Uh, we also have Utu and Inanna's parents. The lunar god Nana and his his wife Ningal. So what's interesting is I've pretty much got the quote unquote holy family venerated <laughs> in my personal pantheon with just some outliers uh who just happen to be hanging out and coincidentally happen to be storm gods because why not?
0: Everybody loves a good storm god. Sure. And you said there were thousands of, of gods.
1: Um over
0: vicinity.
1: yeah, over fifteen hundred that that are known. Yeah. Um there could be, you know, there are thousands upon thousands of untranslated tablets collecting mm. dust in various museums and and storehouses. So who knows?
2: Oh who Sumerian knows? tablets. Um <laughs>
0: And that's where we c- connect back to the ancient aliens.
1: We're going to talk about aliens now. <laughs> Could it be some kind of ancient alien technology? I mean, seriously. <laughs> like,
2: <fuck. laughs> uh, so well, real quick, how yeah, did? I was trying to lead into a question here. Whoa, whoa, well you, you <laughs> dilly dallied too long. Okay, go for it. Um, I would just want so. Uh, um the god Enki. Can you talk about him? Can you talk about how great he is, how amazing he is, and um, how one might want to one the one who sought to seek his favor might be able to attain it.
1: Well, if we want to talk about how great he is, uh, let me read this beautiful passage just so we all know what kind of God we're, we're dealing with. Oh boy. So if we want to, if we really want to get down to brass tacks and, and uh, talk about how wild and evocative and intriguing and integral and key is in in all of this, uh, I'm going to read a spicy passage here. Uh, this is from the the myth Enki and the world order. And what's interesting is uh, <laughs> it it pretty much reiterates passages um, that are found in in other hymns of praise, and it does echo the Egyptian myth in which Atum's act of masturbation led to creation. So, in this passage, uh, we read: Enki had lifted his eyes across the Euphrates. He stood up, full of lust, like a rampant bull. Lifted his penis, ejaculated, and filled the tigrist with flowing water. Nice. <laughs> yeah, that's gonna be that's gonna that's gonna be the uh, the emphasis on. On another book that I'll be writing, uh, <laughs> to, to be released in twenty twenty-five. Um, yeah. It's it's also going to to be the uh, foundation for a men's mystery tradition. We're all just gonna eat lettuce and ejaculate into a river and, and uh, call it a day.
0: Isn't that called it'll, the
1: be, OTO? <laughs> it'll, it'll be a great potting
0: experience? <laughs>
1: Not the OTO. Sorry. I don't want to get them canceled.
2: But um, on a more serious note, though, like.
1: Yeah, on a more serious note.
2: Enki is a pretty. He's typically pretty benevolent to humankind in the myths, isn't he?
1: Oh, he's utterly benevolent. But there is a caveat here. So if you look at the myths in which Enki is the benefactor of humanity, we compare those to the scriptural texts that we find in the the Hebrew Bible we have Enki who saves humanity just as we have the Hebrew God saving humanity by way of Noah we also have Enki who is confusing humanity just as we find the Hebrew God confusing humanity at the tower of the tower of babel so we have Enki or the, the benevolent god or the beloved god uh, and we also have his Semitic counterpart Yah, interesting sounding name there, while the entomology is not the same, there, there are some interesting parallels um, we have Enki who essentially sets the world into motion we have the Hebrew god who also sets the world into motion we have enki who is the creator of mankind literal creator of mankind scooping clay up from from the from the primordial sea and imbuing humanity with life we also have enki as the god of ritual incantation and purification rites i mean if there was one god one soul deity that a a working magician a practicing magician with a spiritual bent spiritual bent in the sense that they have a spirit model in mind and they do find it amenable to align themselves with divine beings or divine emanations whatever you want to to call it enki would be in my opinion not-so-humble opinion enki would be that
2: god so how would it so how would somebody who wanted to make contact with enki go about doing that or or to to develop a positive relationship with enki so say somebody came to you samuel david maestro of the babylonian distro how do i how do i worship the god enki and develop a personal relationship with him and gain his favor let's say somebody came to you and said that what would you te- what would you teach them what would you tell them?
1: So, if someone were to ask about the god Enki, I would refer them to what I would consider the "quote unquote" basic beginner books that introduce him. And these books are actually quite affordable. They're they're you know not obscure. In fact, one of them was actually just reprinted. Um, and that book is Enki, the crafty god, and it presents his myths. It presents liturgical compositions. There's another text that's entitled Treasures of Darkness, and that one was written by Thorkild Jacobson, who was one of the, the the most notable Assyriologists of his time, and, and still is. Um, and additionally, I would also ask more leading questions, um, and, and I say that because a lot of the individuals that... I have met who are interested in Mesopotamian religion specifically for the occult aspect or the occult angle are approaching it from a modern, I guess, misrepresentation in that Enki and, uh, and Lucifer are identical or that Enki and Loki are identical you know we have we have this notion that just because someone is a trickster god or is referred to as a trickster god that they're going to be synonymous with trickster gods and other pantheons or Mm -hmm. or other myths and and cultures so that's you know that's something else that that i would do as well
2: so you would encourage them to um Avoid making assumptions about the nature of the deity.
1: Absolutely. Because I feel like, in my personal opinion, I feel like when we make assumptions about the nature of a deity, we also find ourselves ignoring the culture that informs human comprehension of that deity, if that makes sense. Because I I, I feel like, or I think rather, that in order to understand a deity, it's also important to understand the culture that arose around that deity, that elevated that deity that venerated that deity, that included that deity in their cultic practice or practices or elevated that deity above all the other deities in their respective pantheons or, or what have you.
2: And what's your stance on material offerings? Like, do you think that it's something that's effective and do you think that the gods seek them or, or do you think that that is a human misunderstanding or do you think it is for the spirits that serve the God?
1: I'm trying to think of how to answer that question because I think that those are all salient points and I am well, be blunt i'm i'm a believer in in sacrifice not not to the extent that you know we're going to (laughs) we're gonna slaughter a human being in the name of a god we've got we've got too much of that going on already um i do believe that sacrifices and offerings are vital because they serve a purpose and that purpose is to inconvenience the worshiper because If we're going to approach a God, we're going to, well, let me backtrack here. If we're going to approach the God in a manner that is harmonious with how that God was historically approached by their worshipers while also maintaining our contemporary stance, I think that it's important to put ourselves in that mindset that what we're doing is an act of devotion. It is taking an active role in establishing a rapport with that God or with that emanation of that God with with the spirits that that serve that God so to that end I do think that offerings are important whether that would be offerings in the form of a prayer offerings in the form of incense uh, offerings in the form of a burnt offering like, In my case, if I am presenting an offering and it's something that is important to me, I'm going to invest in an expensive cut of meat and I'm going to present that as a burnt offering, meaning it's going to literally be burned in the presence of those gods for them to receive it.
0: Right, and then in combination with fasting... I mean, another inconvenience. It's kind of a, a one-two punch. Absolutely. Well, Samuel, I think that's a good spot to maybe wrap up on. Um, I feel like we could probably continue talking for another hour or two, but it is getting pretty late, especially on the East Coast. So, I, I definitely want to thank you immensely for coming on and and talking about this. I think it's valuable. I think your work is important. I want to just you know congratulate you on on the success. And hope that you continue. So do you have a a website? Where's a good place where people can kind of uh, see what you're up to and, and find out more?
1: People can find me on Facebook, Samuel David. They can also find me on Instagram, at Rod and Ring. I am also on Twitter, at Rod and Ring. Hardly active on Twitter, though. Uh, I've also signed up for TikTok. I'm doing that that TikTok thing that all the kids do these days, at Rod (laughs) and Ring. I have a a website that is uh, not as active as it should be, but that is rodandring.wordpress.com or rodandring.com. Feel free to email me as well. Rod and ring at gmail.com. I'm trying to corner the market here. I also, <laughs> I also have a, a YouTube channel that is also rod and ring. Um, so far I've got, as of today's date, I have three videos up and the emphasis is on near Eastern culture, contemporary expressions of near Eastern uh, spirituality as well as outlying issues like uh, cultural exchange and uh, third culture in, in the West. So yeah, check me out online. And, and if you uh, want to chat, hit me up on, on various social media platforms.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for being available. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Janice, anything you want to,
2: And with I just wanted to say thank you for being um, such a great guest and going into the world of Babylonian spirituality. It's very interesting and uh, very. I think it's a nice addition to our learning. You know, nice increasing of our learning. And it's it's an for some people I think it can be a an intimidating subject to penetrate into. Penetrate into that's redundant. Um, it can be an interesting subject to examine. I'm getting tired. Um, it's great, thanks and but I th- my point is just that I think people can be intimidated by it. It's very long it's a long time ago. it can seem like a very alien culture um, And given the fact that ancient aliens founded that culture, it makes sense.
1: Yeah, definitely. we, we we've got to thank our our ancient alien. Uh, overlords for (laughs) teaching teaching early humans to create a lasting civilization with mud brick that's yes a timeless building material
2: right right
0: (laughs) awesome thanks man appreciate it very much thank you
2: in the future we should have you on again for another for another round
0: we
1: can definitely court controversy
2: (laughs) Okay, that was Samuel David, a contemporary expert on Sumerian, Babylonian, Mesopotamian, Assyrian religion. I hope I got that right. Definitely an exemplar of the mysteries of Ishtar, Inanna, and uh, a ritual specialist. It was really a pleasure to speak with him. Um, It's such an intriguing subject. When we're talking about Babylon or Mesopotamia or or ancient Egypt, we are speaking about cultures that existed thousands of years ago that still have an impact on our culture today. And I can say, without divulging personal experience, that the gods of these cultures are still very much alive and very real. And it's kind of amazing when you think about that, Even if you, as we discussed in the episode, are a practitioner of an Abrahamic religious paradigm, so much of what you're doing ritually, uh, what you're learning theologically, has deep, deep roots in these cultures. So, learning about them, even if you're in that context, is helpful because it helps you to see how the roots go back so far and how. Even the culture we live in, I think Dom and I have discussed before on this podcast how we live in a social culture that is kind of a hybrid inheritance of Greek and Egyptian—I mean, Greek and Roman culture. Uh, I would say probably via a Byzantine bridge, filtered through um, the Christianity of the Middle Ages into today. Then tempered by the unfortunate rise of Protestantism and the so called quote unquote Enlightenment, which is actually an exercise in paradox given the influence it had on our culture. But the point is, you know, think about our legal system, think about the philosophy that until recently has been part of a classical education, our mathematics, all of this come from those cultures. Well, theologically, Um, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam owe a tremendous amount to Mesopotamian, Babylonian, fertile crescent, religion, myth, magic. Look no further than the myth of Noah. Noah in those sources is called Unapishtim, and his Greek analog is Deucalion. We can find these stories in older forms, which predate the Old Testament, in these earlier cultures, not to mention other obvious connections, such as the Holy Land, Holy Family's flight into Egypt, Moses being raised in Egypt by a royal family, which may be a reference to the family of Akhenaten. It just goes on and on. So I think that there are many reasons why investigating these things can be fruitful for a person who may not even identify as a pagan, which is a term fraught with all kinds of problematic baggage in itself.
0: Well, you pretty much said it all. I, I don't think I would be able to say anything better or more other than maybe uh, it is interesting. I think it's it's time that maybe Mesopotamia gets gets more credit. And I think Samuel is a great guy to do that, um, to push that. Um, because, you know, everyone looks at Egypt as, as kind of like the source, but Mesopotamia was equally influential. So it's great to put that out there in the spotlight. And also Samuel himself is a great example of um, someone very scholarly and meticulous with his research and equally um, versed in in being a practitioner. So I I enjoyed this interview.
2: I did too. Wonderful person, good man. Um, And that's important too, because there's all sorts of morally bankrupt ne'er-do- wells in the occultosphere, especially in the internet world. and we're just we're basically raising flaming arrows against all of them and just shooting and shooting. <laughs> all right, what is the book for this week? So the book for this week was a quite enjoyable read for me. I was impressed with it. So you and I both loved. There were these books in the 90s, uh, they're sort of uh, compilations of writings by active esotericists and occultists um, that were fun because they were short essays on different subjects, sometimes going very deep, sometimes dealing with the sociological route, route, sometimes dealing with um, cults of the 1960s, like the Process Church. One book was called Apocalypse Culture, and that came out, oh, I want to say in the late mid to late 90s. It was published by Farrell House. And another one was published by a new Falcon um, called Rebels and Devils. These were fun books, interesting books, still worth a read. Um, they also kind of illustrate a magical culture that was present in the 1980s and 1990s. But these are not the books we're talking about today. But I want to mention them because this book reminded me of them. Uh, it seems almost like an, an an unintentional inheritor of these excellent text that i that i did enjoy a great deal and it's called uncertain places by mitch horowitz i was originally turned on to mitch by his lectures at the theosophical society which i which i saw online and then um he wrote a book on occult america on really mostly on new age movements of the early new age early new age we're talking you know victorian times into the 1920s and 30s he did touch on uh, some lodge magic and things like that as well. And that was an interesting, it's an interesting historical book. Now this book on certain places goes into some even more, more, uh, I would say, adventurous territory. I was impressed by Mitch because of his willingness to have an open mind and look at things objectively. He talks about all kinds of things here. I mean, he talks about, I, I like he has a very honest, fair uh, evaluation of hermitism The New Age and Gnosticism. He discusses um, really the idea of the magical identity, which is something I really enjoyed. You know, the idea of crafting the magical individuality. Um, He also has a couple of very honest, unbiased examinations of uh, left hand path ideas and practices, such as uh, Satanism and the Temple of Set. And while personally, I don't endorse those things. I was really impressed by his objectivity and willingness to look at the archetype of the adversary um in both a literary, in both a literary and historical sense. Unfortunately, it seems that these this willingness to be objective and open-minded landed him in some rough territory and he was um, ostracized by a group that he had worked with for a very long time. As a lecturer, um, I believe they may have even published some of his work. And sadly, because of his willingness to treat these subjects, he was kind of given the boot. And it's a sad thing, in my opinion. Uh, so, you know, he touches on all kinds of things in this book. It's a series of short SI, e- essays, not SIs. And it touches on touches on witch, witchcraft it t- in modern culture and historically it touches on the quote-unquote illuminati it does t- t- touch e- touch even on new thought which i have my own opinions about um but again blavatsky theosophy edgar casey um, but he also again my favorite portions are where he talks about the identity um, as a magic the, the idea of the magical personality the identity as a as a magical act the The creation of the self as a magical act. I was impressed with Mitch here. I think this may be one of his best books and I fully support him because I feel that he has over the years even become more and more of a free thinker, an open-minded individualist and in a way an inheritor of the founders of our country who also, for instance, Ben Franklin, were more cons- concerned with this idea of a free, of a, of a free spirit, of, a, the, of the human spirit being free to examine ideas and the power of the creative impulse within the human being to forge reality and forge themselves. So, I, I actually really recommend this book. It's called "Uncertain Places" by Mitch Horowitz: Essays on Occult and Outsider Experiences. And that's really an excellent name because the book is all about the intersectionality. Of occultism and the experience of the outsider, which often dovetail. and and it's also just very pleasant because he illustrates many unusual, individualistic, quixotic people who had major effects on the formation of Western culture. It's published by Inner Traditions. I think this one, I think this book is a home run because it's accessible while at the same time, sociological and historical. And very personal so i and i also feel for mitch because i don't think the way that he was treated is fair or or was was fair or objective i think that we should have the freedom to examine and explore ideas as our conscience dictates and um, that includes historical archetypes um, outsiders outsider art outsider culture And people should not feel like they're going to be targeted by the thought police, especially not thought police associated with any particular uh, organization claiming to be a proponent of esotericism.
0: Okay, that was a great review. Thank you. Um, I think that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. And as always, you can check us out on all the platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you're finding podcasts um, also on youtube facebook those those places as well
2: i mean it's remarkable to us that we have thousands of listeners at this point and we just want to say that we love every single one of you and are grateful for all of you as you know as we've said in the past this is a labor of love which we do simply out of a passion for these matters and your support even if it is simply words of support means the world to us